You're listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanoski. Following is a faith conversation with the Reverend Joy Warren. She takes me on a journey into her life, making discoveries about prayer, mindfulness, and cultivating a sense of awe. We even talk about the love of grandmothers, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, a call to ministry, justice, national farm workers' ministry, and the connectional nature of the church. All of these and more are tied to Joy's faith. So enjoy this faith conversation with Joy Warren. Joy, thank you for joining me on Cumberland Road. I want to open up with this question. Share with me your earliest experience, your earliest memory that you would call a a God moment. Think back as far as I can think back. The first thing I can remember, this might sound strange to call it a God moment, but I just, because I remember it, and I was probably about two, two and a half years, I I really feel it must be a God moment. And it was when um, I was young, we were living in a rented house and it was late at night. And I don't remember much about the place. I just remember I was upstairs sitting on the top of the stairs, looking through the railing and the landlord and his adult daughter had come to the house. And they were telling my parents we were going to have to move out, that he was going to give the place to his daughter. And I I remember hearing this and knowing that it was adult conversation and knowing it had meaning that was serious, but I don't remember being afraid. And we moved before I was three or four. We moved seven times. And wow. And so it was it was a lot for a very young baby toddler, young child. And you know, we were always fine. And uh, then we we moved this was in Pennsylvania, and then we when I was three down to South Carolina. Hmm. And my grandparents were there. And we were not far from them, and we were much more stable when we were in South Carolina in terms of housing. Hmm. Um, And eventually when I was in the fourth, moved in with my grandmother. And so I got to grow up with her, which was also a big God thing too. Um, But I just have that sense that I was never alone and I didn't need to be worried and need to be afraid that at the time language to say probably that God was with me, but I felt there's something bigger than what was happening in the moment. You know, move is very disruptive in your life. And I don't know if it's harder when you're younger or older, but it's certainly disruptive regardless of age. So instead of feeling fear, there's that that comfort level. So you, how do you contribute that comfort level, that sense of everything's going to be okay to God? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, later when I was a teenager, maybe eighth or ninth grade, probably somewhere between eighth and ninth grade, I went on a mission trip to um, off the coast of South Carolina. And we were going to, you know, us 14 year olds were going to repair the hurricane damage. Because um, <laughs> we all knew exactly. Um, but we we went, uh, there's, there's a whole side conversation we could have about youth mission trips, but this was a wonderful trip for me. I um, was with our group in Charleston, and we were on the boardwalk. Um, for anybody who's ever been to Charleston, um, there's like a T-shaped boardwalk, and it was nighttime, it was dark. And all the people in my group were behind me, um, sitting on swings and benches and stuff, laughing. And I walked all the way down um, to the end of the boardwalk. And across the water was, it was the harbor where the large ships would come in. And you could see the lights on the ships. And um, there was no moon. And the sky was just black. And the water was black. It was very dark. And I was hanging over the railing, which was black. And I was looking down into the water and I had this thought I could disappear easily. And this sounds very morbid, but it was very comforting to think of my smallness. In that moment, I was thinking, I am so small. This water is so right here. Mm. It's so dark is so vast. The sky is so dark and so vast. And yet God knows me. God has not lost me in all of this vastness. And I think that's kind of connected to that feeling that I had that night that we were being evicted. God will not lose me and I will not lose God. How was that carried into your adulthood? Well, adults have very recognizable challenges. <laughs> you know, now I'm I'm the the parent like my parents who have to navigate, you know, housing and providing all those things. And um, you know, I was just having a conversation with somebody the other day. Anybody who knows me knows I'm I get involved in a lot of stuff. Okay. Um I know a lot of people, I know I'm involved in a lot of organizations, and it's just what I do. It's uh, it's just how I operate. And they were like, I just don't understand how you can process all of this negative, you know, all the bad stuff that's happening with the people who come to you for pastoral care and the people uh, and organizations that are having so many setbacks and challenges and have to exist at all because of the things they're trying to address in a positive way. And I've been really thinking, like, what what is it that makes me feel grounded that that kind of that stuff can just flow through me and not stick in me, you know? Mm. And um, I've been reading some uh, research on awe, A-W-E, awe. And um, I think I have always had this sense of awe of creation. And you know, I cry, if people been around me, they know I cry really easily when I watch something, like I see somebody sing in church and they don't have to have any kind of beautiful voice. I'll start crying. And just the fact that they're doing, I'm just this awe of their caring, you know, and this 
opening of themselves or anytime people are being there's this awe be walking with my son um while he was home over break this summer and we'd be talking about really hard things and I'd be in awe about the way the leaves are blowing in the wind or the flowers in somebody's yard or there's just no matter what is happening the awe of what God has created is larger mm-hmm. and God's sustenance of this planet and, and our beings and um, God's love for us is something too great for me to take in at once. And so of course, in a mathematical equation, it can override all the negatives. I was sharing with a previous guest a couple months ago, uh, a couple of words that have been resonating with me the past two years is humility and gratitude. And gratitude and awe are wonderful cousins. They, I mean, that. Yes, I be, agree. To be grateful for, you know, the leaves as they change and fall, you know, to hear someone belt out a song, even if it's not in proper rhythm, but they're giving it everything that they have. There's that that awe of the mystery and the grace of God that exceeds words and how grateful I am to have breath in my lungs and family and friends and even silly things like shoelaces that are, are still intact or, I mean, just things that, I take for granted um, uh, sitting in a cooled room when it's triple digits outside. Right. But, but more than that, that, I mean, it's more awe and gratitude is that and more. Yeah. And I'm there. I'm there with that awe of just taking it in not analyzing it, but just taking it in and feeling a sense of, of gratefulness, but it it also fills me with love as well. Yeah. It's a mindful practice, you know, it's it's a practice of mindfulness. You don't have to judge it or you just, you're mindful of the awe, you know, mindful of the amazingness. And one of my spiritual practices that I've had for years is a gratitude prayer in the morning. First thing when I wake up and in the evening, right. Sleep. I just do a breath prayer, just simple one breath. Thank you, God. And then during COVID, I added a line. Um, so it's two breaths now. <laughs> Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you, God, for this breath. And that's it. And it really, it took about a year. A lot of people will tell you when you start a mindfulness practice, it takes about a year for it to really take, you know. Um, but, and, and I think, that to be true as well. You know, I forget to do it, or, you know, whatever. Now it's just, it's as natural as breathing. What does that, um, doing it in the morning and saying those words, what does that do for you? Uh, it sets my intention, you know, um, there's the gift of the day ahead that I'm before in the morning. And there's the gift of the day behind me 
And so it brings up to the surface whether there are challenges or joys in the day, which there's both. Um, they were a gift and I learned and I made it, you know, <laughs> with God's help. Well, now that you've been doing it for a while, what does it feel like when you don't begin your day that way with that mindfulness? I, don't know. <laughs> I just do it, you know, I, I do it every day. Okay. The problem is what I do right before that at night is like scroll on my phone too much or something. If I would just get in the bed and do that prayer and go to bed, sleep, you know, that would be much better. <laughs> but whether I do that or I spend an hour, catching up with videos of what happened at the state capitol on Instagram before, you know, all the more meaningful it is to say, thank you for this day. Thank you for this breath. Now let me go to sleep. Joy, let's go back to the moment that you were on the pier and let's live there a little bit longer. Cause I was, as you were describing it, I was thinking about where the, the, the darkness and the depth where um, the horizon and what is the ceiling, you know, what is, where is the sky and where is the earth and where is the water all blended together that can really lead to a sense of emptiness. And one of the things that you didn't mention was like sound. So you weren't like sound deprived, but I mean, that can generate quite a bit of fear. And yet you found solace in that. Let's talk more. Let's live more in that moment for a bit. Yeah, I was, you know, I was a bit down. Um, and that's probably what prompted me to think, gosh, I could just slip right through here and nobody would know. And I, and, and it was instant that, you know, I guess a, um, Imagining that floating in darkness and everything, you know, as as far as you could see around you, up, down, around, everything dark, mm -hmm. and just thinking, I am so tiny. My, my problems are so the 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 vastness of ocean and in it, it's it's so and God made it all, and God made me. And this, I immediately took comfort. It was so comforting. And, and you found, and, you know, you could, you could hear the water as, you know, ships would come in. And so water would kind of splash up against the, the concrete underneath the pier. And I could hear people behind me laughing and I could hear them, um, you know, just kind of sharing stories and giggling and joking and getting up and running around. You know, I could kind of, I knew that that activity was going on behind me. And there, there was a, another time in my life much later when I had that sort of, I mean, I also think this kind of points to uh, a bit of not being afraid of shadow times, like shadow, the shadows of your life, the dark places, like if you want to meet God, you really profoundly, it's often dark places. And um, even though there might be challenge that brings you there, there's 
an awesome amount of uh, God in that place too. It trust, mm. trust, that, trust that God is there and, and will never leave you. But later um, I was a young adult and um, I don't know, it was probably, probably my mid to late and I had just gotten an apartment and I was really kind of feeling down about life situation and I just it was at a crossroads and I was like all right I don't want to sit here long and I looked over and the light was coming in through the door in the kitchen like it had a screen and so the main door was open and the light was coming through and you could see that pattern on the floor of the sunlight on the floor and there was this dark all around it and that sunlight and I was across the room and I looked at it and I just took a minute and went and stood in it stood in the sun and I looked at it and I felt the opportunity of the vastness of the world the opportunity was limitless even though I didn't have any money even though I didn't really know what was next you know it was going to be okay and I mean it seems kind of trite but God's eyes on the sparrow and I, you know, <laughs> I, I know God watches me, you know, I, I, I know that that light was an invitation that whether, whether I'm in the darkness, whether I'm in the light, I'm, I'm presented with opportunities um, to be a child of God and to experience the love of God and to share it. You can find and feel God's love in, I guess, the darkest and in some of the brightest places, metaphorically and, I guess, in reality. Yeah, I've been pretty, pretty literal tonight, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has. It's been very poetic. <laughs> but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Did you grow up in the church and all of its trimmings you know was this a regular activity with your family i don't mean to sound uh trite or dismissive uh, you know the the faith community is is important but i also know you're kind of a we're around the same age so you're a child of the 80s and 90s and and so there's that was a time period where it was a really a mixed bag. It was like you you might have been part of a family that you were in the church all the time, every time the doors were open. Or you might not have ever, ever gone except for maybe like with a friend. What do you think? What's your guess? Okay. Well, <laughs> the the youth mission trip at the age of 14 has a tendency to kind of tip as in, church was a part of your life. So I'm just going to lean into that and say um, the faith experiences of the community, like through worship and through a youth group, was a part of your life. Okay, so you're mostly right. Uh, my first memory was probably around five, and my parents took me or 
I mean, my mom took me and dropped me off at some VBS <laughs> at some big Baptist church, you know, and I had, I still have in my baby book, I have that certificate of attendance. All right. Interesting. My mom saved that because she was not attending church or anything, but probably she was so happy to have a week with no kid, you know, <laughs> um, she wanted to save her that. Remember I had this week without her. No. Um, <laughs> Anyway, after that, um, we, let me think, let me think. We moved in with my grandmother, like I said, between third and fourth grade, and we went to church with her, and she went to a little tiny Presbyterian church, and um, she had grown up Episcopalian, my grandmother, and my grandfather died right before we moved in with her, and and she, there was no church, there was no Episcopal church in the area. So she had just gone, we were in a little rural area in South Carolina. So she had started going to this Florence Moore Memorial Presbyterian Church where the name was bigger than the building. And um, there were at most 25 people there. Mm-hmm. So it was very similar to a lot of our Cumberland Presbyterian churches. Um, and we would go and in the morning before church, grandma had this drawer in her like chest of drawers in her room. And my sister and I would get in that drawer and we would get our little beaded purse and a little hanky and grandma would give us a little quarter or something. And we'd stick in there and we would go to church. And I mean, I look at pictures of us and we, we definitely look like two little old ladies, even though we were like (laughs) nine years old or 10 years old. Um, that we really got opportunities to do all kinds of things. And there wasn't a sort of, I didn't grow up in that church feeling any sort of hierarchy of, of age or generation, right? It was very intergenerational. If we were going to do a study or a dinner or whatever, we were all doing it together. And um, we had an awesome pastor for most of my childhood time who had been um, in the Peace Corps. And he was just such a thoughtful guy and he had seen parts of the world that I could only imagine to see. And I really liked him. I really respected him. And as a teenager, I was able to preach, you know, they they would have youth day. And I remember, and actually not too long ago, I found in the Bible that they gave me when I graduated from high school, they, um, I had stuck part of my sermon in there and it was admonishing the people that they couldn't come in here every Sunday and say stuff they believe and then turn around and act like they didn't and I'm still saying that <laughs> to the people in the pews 16 year old joy is preaching the same message all right uh, let me interrupt you for a moment so uh, did you that first sermon was it bullet points note cards was it manuscript had it what was that first sermon like? Oh, I typed it out, you know, typewriter, like typewriter. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yeah. I think maybe it was handwritten, but it was written out. Yeah. The whole thing was written out. All right. Could you still use it today? Well, I'm, yeah, I absolutely use it <laughs> every time I preach. No, I mean, not word for word, but because it probably was five minutes like most youth Sunday sermons. <laughs> But those are the best comments. Why do you need? Yeah, why do you need to say more? Say what you got to say. Move on. 
Okay, so um, you had opportunities in in this long named Presbyterian yeah. church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, like when I went on that mission trip, I was the only person from my church. I went with a group that was going from a neighboring city. We were in a little town where they had three three young women who had to, or three towns. One young woman represented three little towns in the Miss South Carolina pageant. Miss Duncan Lyman Welford, you know. <laughs> and also, I mean, that was a really, um, I've really been reflecting the past 10 years, really, on what has formed me, you know, in terms of my theology and my my view of the world. And of course, Mr. Rogers is up there as one of the big formative pieces of my life. And um, growing up in rural South Carolina, in Lyman, South Carolina, as a racial minority. Um, and my mother started a Girl Scout troop. We were the first integrated, racially integrated Girl Scout troop in the county, um, which was the 80s. It wasn't the 50s, okay, in case anybody needs to get an adjustment and how old Joy really is um, and how long segregation has been going on. Um, so, you know, my, I, I've always had black friends and, you know, I, I, it's just who I lived with, you know? And so that lent itself pretty naturally, I guess, to my work on the unification task force. Mm. Yeah. Just for context, uh, for those listening, unification was between, well, it's been multiple times. The most recent one was just a couple years ago. Well, three years <laughs> ago. Um, but unification between two denominations, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America. Right. It began in this iteration, began in 2012, and we were um, disbanded in uh, 2021. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Mr. Rogers. Have you gone back and watched any of those older episodes? Yeah, yeah, I watched the clips, maybe not the whole thing, but when my kids were small, they just didn't like, they didn't like Sesame Street, and well, Mr. Rogers wasn't on anymore, and I was like, what's the matter with my kids? Uh, yeah, yeah. I need them to like PBS. <laughs> I, I caught, the reason I ask is I caught a clip of uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and I didn't remember this as a kid, because I watched it all the time, too, but how slow and meticulous and how when he took his time like to feed like the goldfish yeah yeah or what was where did i see it like peel an apple mm-hmm. you know like it and this for me as an adult an older middle-aged adult i was like how does it take to peel an apple but he wasn't peeling an apple for me he mm-hmm. was showing methodically, taking his time of this is how you peel an apple. And mindful. He's mm. just mindful of everything he did. Everything was intentional. And did you know that you can cut this apple in two ways and then, you know, four ways mm-hmm. and, you know, and these slices can be shared. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly what he said. But, yeah, I remember the slowness of it. But as an adult, I was like, I know why he does it. It makes total sense, but I wanted it to go faster. 
But then I realized <laughs> it's not for this older TJ. It was for the, the young TJ yeah. who wasn't allowed to hold a knife. But when he got an, right. old enough to hold one, <laughs> he knew how to carve a, an apple. <laughs> and just um, awe with which Mr. Rogers saw the world mm-hmm. and the curiosity and the questions that he asked people. And no matter what they did, there was something to be curious about, you know, that honored their work and honored their personhood. And I just, I, I really appreciate and I'm gr- grateful for growing up with those lessons. Yeah. How to interact with other people, to be calm, to be open. Um, yeah. And to see it in adult. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. pretty neat. Okay, we got Mr. Rogers uh, <laughs> as influential and as well as the pastor there at the church. Um, any other folks who have influenced your faith that you'd like to mention? Well, my grandmother, of course, um, she was one of those, you know, I think every church probably has one of these quiet people who just does the stuff that needs to get done and doesn't call any attention to themselves and wouldn't want anybody to call attention to them. And, you know, in this small church, I, I mentioned as a kid, how cool it was to be able to be invited and have opportunities to, to do all types of things. But for my grandmother, you know, it was like, oh, we don't have anybody to do this. So I guess I will do it. So, you know, I sort of watched her become a Sunday school teacher which I think was very much out of her comfort zone, but she prepared carefully and quietly and um, she did that. And then she became the treasurer and she knew nothing about bookkeeping, but she was meticulous about keeping the the ledger book and everything. And, um, you know, just the things that needed to be done, she did without really, you know, any attention called to it. And then when she got to the point in her life where she could not be mobile, um, she actually had left the church because I know this is going to sound like a wild thing, but this little church had a hard time having a full-time minister there. And um, so as it happened, as it, it, you know, I, I don't know how this happens anywhere, but they had a Baptist minister who found his way to the church. and. Um, he was serving the church because he was willing and they didn't have anybody else who would who would work uh, part time in this church at the time. And. I don't know the story, but he basically ran my grandmother off and I've never seen her. She had never been sick until that man came and then she started to get nose and dizzy and her blood pressure went really high and just for her health she had to leave when she left they put her name on the sign you know already it had a lot of words on it Florence Moore Memorial Presbyterian Church but they said in and she was still living that they added in honor of Betty Kessig at the bottom of the sign of all the work she had done over the years for the church and then, um, but really kind of more than that, that was so interesting to me as her grandchild was at dinner, she would tell us stories about growing up and she was 
generation in this country from England, and her husband was generation from Hungary. And um, she lived with her grandparents in a boarding home. They, they started a boarding home in Ohio, and they had people living there from Europe. You know, and you know, think about the time we're talking about after World War One, and um, these were people that weren't getting along because of war, but they they had hospitality for these men. And something I learned just a few years ago was that a cross was burned in their alley because of them allowing these people to live in their boarding home. Wow. And just the bravery that they had, you know, to persist in offering hospitality, um, these challenges to their safety. Mm -hmm. And then grandma also, she's so quiet and, you know, you just, um, this like streak to her, but she told us when you know she was growing up, she wanted to be a reporter. But the choices were secretary or nurse. And so she became a nurse. And then she and my grandfather eloped because she was not allowed to be married um, as a nursing student. And so they eloped and got married and Anyway, she had, you know, a whole full career of nursing before I really knew her as grandma. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but she just, she cared for us and she modeled a way of just sort of quietly serving wherever was needed. She was on the Friends of the Library board. She was a volunteer at the animal shelter so those people could go to lunch. She would sit there and answer the phone at lunch and she was the Girl Scout cookie chairman and you know, she did a lot of things. And um, I guess maybe I'm learning right now as I'm saying this, oh, maybe that's where I got this, uh, let's be involved in activity possible. But I never felt like it. I never felt like she was busy or, or stressed or overwhelmed. She, she handled everything. And then she would make a full dinner and to dessert and, you know, every night. <laughs> you know, we were talking off mic and there are some similarities. I was thinking that as you were talking about your grandmother, you know, treasurer, you volunteer to be a treasurer, yeah. national yeah. farm workers. I can certainly hear some influences from your grandmother Definitely. that yeah. exhibits itself in your life today. So one of my um, spiritual gifts, I guess, would be, um, I sound woo woo but it is a uh just sort of a knowing like i get this sort of message and i just know something and you know some people are gonna go well i don't know about this but it's usually has to do with somebody passing away and i just know when it happens and i felt that about my grandmother i i just knew she had passed and so i called home and, and verified yeah she had you know within the past 10 minutes she had just passed away mm. and I just it's something that really I was I was you know I've been not living in the same state for a long time years before she passed away and I felt 
you know, I missed her. I, I, I was sad that she was not able to be at my wedding. And, uh, you know, I just missed her at these main events of my life and my children being born. And, and so of course we, we would go and visit every once in a while, but we, we did, you know, young people and ministry, we, we didn't have much money and, you know, we, we didn't travel very much. And so I just, it was like a gift to me, really. It just was a feeling of closeness and um, connection. And it's a feeling I still have. And and that's happened a few other times with some people. And I, you know, I really asked God, why do you let me know this? You know, what does this mean? Is there something I'm supposed to do with this information? Mm-hmm. And I'm just not, I don't, I don't really know what the answer is. I just decided to stop looking for the answer and just trusting the information. <laughs> and so So this information, and by the way, you're not the first person that I know that has expressed a similar gift. Mm-hmm. Um, not on the podcast, but it just in another setting. <laughs> not in public. <laughs> not in public. Uh, but um is it has it is it always loved ones? Is it someone you're related no. to or no. No. Um, one time I, I was in, it was while I was in seminary, but I was at home and I was studying and I was sitting on the couch. I had my book open in my lap. And I just remember Chris was coming through the room and he looked at me. He's like, are you okay? And I said, so-and-so just died. And he was like, what? <laughs> How did, did they call or something? And then the phone rang wow. and it was their sister telling him. Uh, that she had passed away and it just you know just kind of ran I mean it's it none of it is 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 shocking it's not like you know it's it's someone who's been ill or you know it's it's expected at some point um but it's you know it's always within five ten minutes of the event oh okay okay so it, it it's not like an unexpected um right death uh, not not that well I mean Death is inevitable for everyone, but okay, it's not that TJ was fine and then TJ (laughs) fell off the ladder and you knew from no, these were these were people who were, you know, hospice type situation. Okay, end of life, but um, you know, you wouldn't know exactly when, and just I just knew it's like oh, this person passed. Yeah, and. um, I'm amazed by the um, the proximity and time. Not, it's not like two mm-hmm. days ahead of time is like minutes. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to think about that. Yeah, and other times it'll be something that doesn't really make any sense to me. I have a really strong feeling I'm supposed to tell it to somebody. And I've just decided I might look like a fool, but I'm just going to tell it. And so... It's usually people I don't know very well, which is the scary part, right? Because I'm like messaging them on Messenger. I'm like, hey, I know we're Facebook friends and we don't really know each other very much, but does this mean anything to you? And I'll type it out. And they always write back and they're like, oh my gosh, yes. And they'll explain all the images and they'll, you know, (laughs) and I'm like, okay, well, I knew I would look like to looney tunes but i just thought maybe if it had some meaning for you i'd let you know has the information been helpful to the people that you've 
that with the well, they say so, but okay. I mean, I mean, you can read your horoscope and get something out of it, right? Yeah, I trust that it's given to me. Like I, I feel it's just a, it's a different feeling. It's like when you ask somebody, "How do you know how God speaks to you?" And it's really hard to put into words how you know. You just know. Or mm. if you, I remember when I was in labor with Gray, and I was. I was calling my friend. I'm like, I feel like the baby's supposed to come right now. And, and she said, you'll know, you will know. And, and you do, you know, you know, um, not now, but now, you know? And so these messages, it's like, it's clear that it's not just a dream or, you know, something like that or daydreaming or something. It's like, here's something this person needs to know. And you just need to trust that the spirit gave it to you. Has the news always been good? Good news? Is it? Is it warning? Usually, I don't is, know. Okay. I, usually, I don't. I don't. Um, I, usually, I don't have uh, any idea. I mean, and I mean, here's an example of one. I hope it's okay to share. I'm not going to share the person's name, and um, and like I said, I barely know them, so they'll probably <laughs> not listen to this. But um, so, I, if I can remember it right, it was I had this image of a couch with a white toy horse on it mm. and the color gold um i feel like there were two or three other um and i just told the person and she said that she had been thinking a lot recently about her grandfather and she used to go over to his horse farm and play when she was little. And she was thinking about one of the last times she could remember being really, really happy. And um, that in order to start cultivating that feeling again, she had begun to go and sit outside in the sun at the end of the day and the beginning of the day so she could be in that golden time. Hmm. And so it had meaning for her. I didn't know what it meant. How, without revealing this this person, but it, collectively these experiences that you've had, how do you know that these images are connected to the specific individual? Uh, just it just their name. Wow. Okay. <laughs> just I just yeah. All right. Is this a gift that um, you have always had, or did you acquire it later in life? I think as a child, I was always very intuitive um, in terms of reading people. Mm -hmm. And I always gravitated towards the adults, like, you know, not not so much of the kids and adults would tell me later that I intimidated them. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? They're like, you're so serious. And so and you just seem to know exactly what I was thinking. And, um, but I don't remember like specifically having, you know, meaningful messages like that. When I was young, I just remember feeling this person is a safe person. This person is hurting right now. This person, I could just feel their emotions and my son has that as well um sometimes like when i go to general assembly um i feel the feelings in the room i feel the nerves 
Mm-hmm. I feel, you know, when people are nervous to get up and speak, I feel it in my body for them. Or, um, so I, th- I think there's some like intuition there. Um, but I think the more I have grown into a life of prayer and uh, mindfulness that I feel these things have become, you know, more to the surface. It almost sounds like a superpower. <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know, you know, they, sometimes people don't tell me anything. I'm like, do what you want with it. If it means something to you, you know, you don't have to tell me anything. I just thought I'd tell you, you know. I also sometimes will have these really, really powerful spiritual prayer experiences. And uh, and it's funny, I'm sharing with you because I think a lot of people don't, um, who, who maybe just know my name and some of the work I've done, they don't know this, like, that I'm, I'm, I've considered myself a deeply spiritual person. Um, I, I like to know facts and figures and I like to study and I, I like to, um, I, I, I like to know what I'm talking about, you know, but I also really <laughs> feel spiritually connected and, um, some people that I have been, you know, church members or just people I know from, different ministries who have been very sick. I have had these powerful prayer experiences. It wasn't like I wasn't praying for them in the moment. I might've been sleeping and it just hits me. And it's this beautiful image of them slowly spinning and this gold just filling them. Like it's like almost Oscar statue that sort of demeans it but you know just that 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 this like this golden statue and and then depending upon their kind of personality or how I know them I'll see images around them and it's it's not I mean I don't I don't know what it's doing I just know that it's a really powerful prayer experience I you know have been praying for them or worried for them as they go through this challenging health crisis might be end of life it's just this sort of connection to them and to God and that God is not going to leave them that we're experiencing right now. The love of God is filling them up. There's no empty space for that. Mm. And um, it's just a really powerful image. And I don't make it like it. It just hits me. It just comes to feel like it's a gift and a visual gift. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the prayer takes an image form. I've never really considered that before. I have to think of my own prayer life, but certainly not that vivid. So that's really that's really interesting, Joy. Yeah, when I was in seminary, the artist in residence the first year was Sybil Macbeth, who wrote the Praying in Color books. And I've done some of those workshops with, um, I mean, it's not that she didn't come up with it, right? I mean, a lot of people have been praying in color, but her books are awesome and her website's really great. You know, if you put a little plug in for her, (laughs) (laughs) Um, especially like Advent or, you know, Lent and season, if you want to do sort of like a visual calendar of prayer, um, those are really awesome. And, and just the idea that you could just sit and a lot of older people don't color with 
crayons or markers. And so if you give them a marker, it's pretty easy, easy to for the ink to come out of it. It, mm-hmm. it flows really easily onto the page. And just the things that they draw as they are being mindful of their friends or their concerns of the world and their community. And they make this visual representation. And and I think once you do that, I've, I've done that several times in my office at the church um, where I used to work. I would just put them on the wall around me. And then you have these visual images of your prayers so that it's not just one point in time, that prayer. But every time you look at it, you can be reconnected to that prayerful time. Yeah, I, again, I've never really connected uh, my prayers either in, in my head or verbal with imagery beyond maybe thinking of, yeah thinking <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sitting here thinking uh, maybe you know maybe th- by saying a person's name you know that their face their image might come to my inner mind but certainly mm-hmm. not in the way that you d- I'll just have to think on that some more um <laughs> Joy, you were sharing that at age 16, you had the opportunity to preach. What Mm -hmm. was the 16-year-old Joy thinking about? Was she thinking about ministry? Was she thinking about career, (laughs) vocation? What was on your mind? What did you want to do? Well, I either wanted to be president of the United States. Okay. Or... It's still possible. Well, probably not. Um, or I wanted to be um, an act, actor or director. And so I went to college and majored in theater. Okay. And um, I quickly moved into directing. And I mean, it's just, I see the whole thing. I mean, it's kind of connected, right? Like yeah. I see the whole thing. I hear the play. I see the play. I I have all the experiences, the sensory experiences about the play. I don't just want to coach the actors on where they're going to move and what, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have this sense of when I worked with actors, I would work with them in, the, in their movement and the speed and the strength behind them and how that alters their character just without speaking. You know, just the way you move through the space, uh, just the way the space looks. Um, I remember I was directing the women, the play, the women during. We were set to open opening night was the night of prayer, national prayer after 9-11. And so we were in the theater during um that production week we'd moved in and everything um when all of that happened and I was five months pregnant and um the play everything was plastic everything was pink plastic and it was like it was everything was superficial and so wanted I wanted people to be immersed in superficiality you know I didn't want to have like real uh couches and furniture and all that stuff everything needed to be plastic and um everybody needed to treat all the plastic stuff as if it were real and um so it was like a design concept but that sort of thing you know it's still with me as I 
cultivate and curate worship experiences. So I did go to college to major in theater. And I mean, I really loved directing. I loved acting too, but as I started working in plays, I started seeing the whole thing. And so what I wanted it to look like, what I wanted it to sound like, what I the textures to be, you know, I knew all of that stuff just came into mind. So then when I, you know, became, when I felt called to ministry and I began curating worship experiences or prayer room experiences, things like that, it was important to me to have multi-sensory experiential worship. Mm. And uh, so I really enjoy curating worship experiences and prayer experiences where people participate in fresh ways so they can hear the word, not just spoken, but feel it. You know, what does it mean to feel the word of God? What does it mean to smell the word of God? You know, those kinds of things. And so ritual, I think, is really important in a worshiping community um, to meaningful worship Hmm. and ritual, you know, meaningful ritual. So it's not just disconnected from your intentions before we move into your calling in the ministry what was your favorite play to direct or or play that you have yet to direct mm-hmm. oh i really enjoyed all of them um one of them uh that i directed was the 50th anniversary for circle players in nashville and i directed the play and inspector calls and I did it in the round. Um, it's, you know, it's a play talking about uh, our participation in social justice and, um, you know, how we're responsible for one another. You know, all these people in this wealthy home are being interrogated about um, the death of a young, poor woman, you know. Mm. And they're like, that wasn't me. I don't have anything to do it. And then by the end, they're all convicted that it was their fault. Um, so doing the play in the round that we didn't, you know, it's a community theater. We didn't have a lot of money for set pieces and ornament. This is a wealthy family. So we only really needed like two pieces and it suggested a wealthy home. People were sitting all around watching from action. And so it's a challenge as an actor to act in the round, but it was really moving, I think. And I think it really was so. And I just enjoy working with actors too, helping them find ways to do things that they didn't think they could do and see, you know, just unlocking that in themselves. So from acting to directing to ministry, (laughs) walk me through that leap. Well, it wasn't the next step. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) So when I moved to... Nashville, even though I was, I was doing theater, um, for work, I got a job through a temp agency at a financial planning firm. And, um, so I started at their front desk and answering the telephone and the fax machine. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, um, what that is, you'll have to look it up, (laughs) be like, insurance ledgers and I would I just sort of taught myself how to read it and I'd ask questions every once in a while and the guys would be like how do you know how to read this I'm like I mean I I have eyeballs you know (laughs) I don't know anyway I just 
you know, I was interested. I was curious. I'm always curious. I wanted to learn everything I could learn about where I was. And, and so before you knew it, I had a job there and somebody had left. They had a baby and they left. And so I I uh, came into the office and worked there for a few years. And then, um, I don't know, we had kids and uh, I I was going back and forth. Like I, I took some time off when I had our first child and I went back and worked for them again. And then I left and um, tried to become a financial planner. And I realized that that was not for me because I just wanted to help people. I didn't want to sell things to people. So I um, thought when Chris finished Divinity my husband, Chris, um, when he finished divinity school, I thought I would go to graduate school for economics. And so I started looking. And while I'm looking up programs for economics, it just hits me. You need to look at Memphis Theologicals. <laughs> like it's like a neon sign blinking. And I found myself going to that website. I was like, I doubt they have an economics program. <laughs> yeah. And I found myself pulling up the fall scheduled classes. And there was a class called spirituality and social justice. And God said, your booty will be in that class. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like midnight. And I went, I asked, I poked Chris. I was like, I think maybe I'm supposed to go to seminary. He's like, I wondered when you were going to figure that out. <laughs> and uh, so that's how I ended up going to Memphis Theological Seminary. And I got there to register for that class. And the registrar said, I'm sorry, it's full. Mm. And I was like, um, you don't understand. <laughs> like <laughs> God said, I'm supposed to be in that class. That's the whole reason I'm here. I can't not be in this class. You know, it's a special class. It's not something they offer all the time. You know, who knew if they were going to offer it again when I was there? And they were like, well, sorry, it's full. I was like, I got my checkbook. How much money do you want? I am going to be in that class. No, sorry, it's full. So I go talk to Steve Parrish and he's like, uh, how about rural ministry? That's kind of related. And, you know, at the time I didn't know who Pete Gacky was. So I didn't know why everybody was saying spirituality and social justice was the same thing as urban ministry. Mm. And so anyways, I, I was like, oh, whatever, I guess it doesn't even matter anymore. I don't even know if I'm going to go to the school, you know? And then I go back and this other a young person is behind me and I'm not a very young person at this point. I'm like, I was younger than I am now, but <laughs> um, straight out of Bethel was behind me. And, and she was like, Oh, cool. I'm taking that urban ministry too. And I was like, yeah, okay. And uh, <laughs> I get up to the desk first and they're like, Oh, that's full. I'm sorry. And I was like, what? And the registrar came over, she saw me and she was like, is that that social justice girl? <laughs> and so, of course, that label has stuck with me since that day, social justice girl. And you and weren't even she, a student yet. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I wasn't even a student. And she's like, go ahead, go ride in spirituality and social justice. Class. I said, now there are two of us. And I got Butler in the class with me. And so did, she let us both get in. And I said, I'm not writing a check this time. <laughs> <laughs> 
that offer is also, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, but that's how I got in that class and I loved it. And it was definitely me, you know, it was like what I wanted. I wanted to learn how do you walk on the two feet of love? You know, how do you prayer and action, prayer and action, and how do you balance that? And it was, it was my call and is and continues to be my call to ministry. All right. So at that point, were you thinking ordained ministry or was this just a class to take? What, what was your mind process at that time? Well, I knew God was calling me to ministry. I didn't exactly know what that was going to look like. I knew that up to that point, I had done well in writing and speaking and planning, you know, those kinds of skills. And I I thought, you know, who knows, maybe this is going to be some connection with like charitable work um, uh, where, where you're talking about high net worth people, which is the people I had worked with in a financial planning firm and meet matching them with needs in the world or you know I, I i was still thinking you know maybe this economic part is going to match up with the ministry part and um but it was pretty quick that i felt called to pulpit ministry preaching okay and um while i was a student i you know i would fill in places but i wasn't serving a state of supply or anything like that i had two young children and I was living four hours away from Memphis. And so I was commuting every week and leaving them. And it was hard. It was really hard on our family uh, to do that. Was your husband, Chris, was he finished with Divinity School? Yes. Yes. He was serving a church. He'd been called to a church and serving there. And um, I worked part time for the uh, financial planning firm. As long as I could, they're like, we'll keep you as long as you can still work. And then when you have to quit, quit. And uh, so I did that for, I don't know, another year after I started seminary. Um, But then I just couldn't manage all that. Yeah. I mean, eight hours on the road, uh, two small children. Um, You're living off a minister's salary. You guys, you guys had your challenges for sure. Yeah. 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 At the time that he was called to, to serve the church, um, you know, I was, I was getting paid more than he was. And so I gave that up and I had lots of benefits and gave those up. Now I'm getting depressed, TJ. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the wonderful church that, uh, denomination that we serve. I ask almost every guest this, from your perspective, what are some of the things that we are getting in terms of ministry that we're doing really well? And also, where are some areas that we we are missing? Yeah, I think, you know, I have been, um, I have been really fortunate to be able to serve the denomination in, in several different ways. Um, small and large, and at different judicatorial levels. And on the unification task force, um, I had the opportunity to travel and, uh, well, I mean, 
not a lot, but I mean, I, I would go and visit other churches from both denominations and we would have some time of fellowship and discussion. And I think, you know, what was really evident there was that we have so much in common, the small rural churches of both denominations, you know, we, we like to sing our favorite songs in worship and we like to have potlucks and we like to get together and have banana pudding, you know, and I mean, it's just, it's that time around the table that I think really you can't um, lift up enough. You know, we, we really are a family. We just, the challenge is getting everyone to realize what a large family we have. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think one of the things that really excited us on the, the unification task force in the plan, the proposed plan of union was this idea of regional uh, centers and regional ministries where we could really uh, allow the people who are the places that had particular gifts for ministry um, to to really focus on them and push them out and share them with the rest of the denomination. And one example, I mean, of course, did not unify for those who are unfamiliar with the process. <laughs> we did not vote to unify. And um, that doesn't mean that the elements of unity have to be out the window. Uh, on the contrary, a lot of people are what I would call unified. Um between the two denominations because they have chosen to do so uh, on on their own, church to church, uh, presbytery to presbytery, those types of things, um, doing mission together, serving mm-hmm. together on boards and agencies, that sort of thing. But this idea of regional ministry is, I'll just use an, as an example, I think, I think as Cumberland Presbyterians, we have just a humongous asset to us and it's 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 a a beautiful and horrible story but um Japan presbytery could teach us so much about peace and reconciliation if we would be interested to learn and i have been really amazed by um the pastors and elders and their their wisdom, their their desire to hear all sides of a story, to pause, to contemplate and reflect upon what they've heard before they come to a decision on anything, um, and 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 their recognition of the consequences of doing things too quickly, and the harm that can be caused when you do that. So that's just one area where I feel like we really could learn a lot. Um, and I, I, as you know, we, we are connectional in name and I mean in theory. And so there are some pockets where this is really evident and it's going really well. I think for the people who really claim that identity, they really live into it and they plug into the resources and they help create resources and ministry opportunities and share that. And it's just some really cool things going on, like uh, Lisa Cook's ministry in Nashville and Joyce Merritt's ministry in the Murfreesboro region, um, where they've just kind of 
been out of the box and um, they've been serving people and serving out their calling. It's really like a magnet. Like people are just drawn to the work Mm -hmm. and the ministry to help support it and be a part of it. Um, So it's just, you know, telling their stories and inviting people to connect. I think where that's happening, where people are willing to do that is going really well, but um, where it's not, and there's there's just a lot of people who don't know much about the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and they're going to a Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. So that's an opportunity <laughs> for, to and in, in, invite to connectionalism. Uh, there was a book that Marty Plemons wrote. She was a, a member. She's passed. She was a member of the First Cumberland Church in Murfreesboro. She wrote the book first they prayed a children's book about the origins of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and you know as I hear stories about new church development and new ministry developments in Colombia and Guatemala and the Philippines and hear stories about people who just sit in a on a piece of land you know and pray until they feel the spirit move them that it's the time to start Hmm. you know that's something we can learn from as well and uh, that faith and preparation, spiritual preparation, uh, there's just there's a lot of things we can learn from that are that are going well. I do believe that if we had um, spent just a teeny tiny percent of the energy that we're spending now, worried about who's sleeping with who, on the unification effort, I mean, we wouldn't still be trying to unify since 1879. Um, That was a deep disappointment for me, um, but it also was also my vote not to unify um, because we're just, we're not prepared for listening to each other's stories Hmm. in the way that we need to be to, to be one. So it's going to have to happen person to person and church to church. I think opportunities like this, like Cumberland Road, these long format faith conversations lend themselves for us to be able to converse and listen and talk, learn, agree, disagree, love, raise eyebrows, (laughs) laugh, uh, lower eyebrows, all those different mm-hmm. things that we do right. that allows us to get to know one another better. And there isn't a replacement for spending time in the presence of another human being and just listening and learning and sharing. Um, I'm open to other alternatives, but this is the best one that I know so far. Yeah, it's a good thing to do to invite people to share their stories. I- I mean, I, I know that that presence with one another is is what, what makes things possible, what makes the building up possible. When we, when we met as the Unification Task Force from the first meeting, we said we will be one group. We will not be two, mm. you know, and then at some point vote to come together. We just, we're going to start as one. Mm. And that sort of was you know, pervasive, that idea that if we would just get together, we could work out the rest. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, we became a little family. We cared about, we go around and, and share prayer concerns and we cared about what was happening to each other's family members and, you know, health concerns and celebrated successes and all of those things. I'm, I'm so thankful for my friendships with the people, especially Reverend Dr. Mitchell Walker. I mean, I count him a very friend and, and mentor and um, we, d- we did a conference on race relations with the Center for Faith and Imagination out of Memphis. And it was it was really great to be able to share our experiences. And one of the most meaningful moments in ministry for me was when we served together as worship leaders at General Assembly and um, were able to sort of model a conversation about race together, being vulnerable. Hmm. And that's what it's going to take, I think, for us to really go deeper their understanding of each other and how God is working with us, um, you know, broken vessels as we are, um, being, being vulnerable, being willing to be vulnerable. Joy, where do you see God? How do you know about God's presence in your life today? We've been talking about God's shape in your life in the past and in the different experiences that you've had. But today, this this day that we are talking, how do you know that God exists? How do you experience that presence? Well, multiple ways um, through through nature. Keenly, you know, I, I keenly experience God through through nature, but also in the the long arc of justice. You know, um, we. We do the work through National Farm Worker Ministry, meeting people, serving with people who Cesar Chavez marched with him, you know, and and they're still committed to the movement and they're in their 80s and 90s. Hmm. And the hope, the hope that people who seek justice have, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, that they will prevail. That hope comes from God. It comes, it's faith, it's gift, because it's certainly not from the situation. <laughs> and, um, you know, as as we watch what's happening in our Tennessee legislature this week, um, I can watch it, I can feel myself being upset, and I can watch the public and there to, to seek change, uh, be shocked and appalled, but I can still feel hope that we will see justice in the building of the beloved community. I don't know how it all is going to come together. I don't know how all the tactics or how it's all going to work, but um, that section of the confession of faith, 6.30 and 3.1, those are the things that really call to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and continue to be the ways that God speaks to me through calling me to works of justice and love. National Farm Workers Ministry is a Cumberland Presbyterian ecumenical partner. Could you briefly describe um, what that ministry is and what it does? Right. So um, the member organization... National Farm Worker Ministry are um, you know, denominations and religious orders 
and they'll send a representative. I represent the Cumberland Presbyterian Church on the board, and I have been on there since January of 2014, so I just finished 10 years of service on the board, which is kind of shocking to me, Um, but the (laughs) past three or so, I have been the treasurer. I'm on the executive council now, and um, we partner with farm worker advocacy organizations, whether they're unions or some other structure, um, to help advocate for the things that farm workers need. Um, we ask them what they need. We don't tell them what they need. <laughs> so um, sometimes the, those organizations have different goals, and sometimes there's a little bit of tension in trying to support um, multiple partners who might be seeking different things at one time. Um, but it is always incredibly moving to visit farm labor camps and and be a clergy person. And often it's the first time that those farm workers have been visited by people of the church. And it's it's um, incredibly horrible, the living conditions that the people who feed us live in and endure. And it's incredibly unjust the ways they are brought here or the lies they're told. Um, our guest worker visa program is is horribly full of, of um, corruption. And um, learning their stories and hearing them and telling them and as as faith organizations calling on corporate farms and growers to do the right thing for the labor that they employ what are some of the needs of uh, farm workers and the organizations that they become a part of well, um, a lot, I'll just share this most recent meeting that we had was in Vermont. It's the first time I've, I've been t- to New England with the farm. We always go and visit where one of our partners is is doing something. And so we joined um, Migrant Justice with their Milk with Dignity program. And Vermont, it, it may not be the, the state has the largest dairy production, but dairy production is one of the largest uh, businesses in Vermont. Hmm. And uh, what this looks like is a lot of dairy farms with one or two farm workers. Hmm. So they're incredibly spread out from each other and disconnected and nobody knows what's happening to them, right? And they don't know how to connect. So this group helps them connect and share their stories and share their needs with one another. They started coming together after a preventable death of one of the the dairy workers. And um, that was the first time that I had really seen a setup like that um, because we'd been to the East Coast and the West Coast and these large farms that have lots of farm workers. And I thought, well, I can support this or support that. But, you know, I I live in Tennessee and there's a lot of farmland in Tennessee, but I don't think of it uh, the same as I, I do some of these, these places that I've visited in California and North Carolina. 
Um, but now I know that there are probably places that have one or two or three workers and like, how are they connecting or how are they getting help with needs that they have? And um, so that that kind of helps me learn to have my eyes open when I go to the farmer's market on the weekend, for example, I can ask some questions <laughs> about, you know, uh, about their farm and their labor and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's not what everybody's going to do. So in, in light of that, there's, there's always uh, funds that are needed by the, the farm worker partners. Um, a lot of them were very busy during COVID distributing um, gift cards for families who lost somebody to COVID or had no income while they were sick, had no health care, um, and so just had to ride it out without any treatment. Um, that That's still, uh, we just finished a, a program of gift cards to people who were impacted by COVID in North Carolina uh, through National Farm Worker Ministry. Um, and then uh, Bethel, uh, Bethel Farm Worker Ministry down in Florida is another ecumenical partner of the denomination, and they are always collecting particular items. You can go on their website and see what they're in need of, and they they distribute backpacks to kids and food. They have food distribution uh, all the time there, and um, they have a dental clinic, and you know they have, they have a lot of based ministries. Uh, out of their location but there's a lot you know you just go on their websites and check it out and see what the current needs are you can get on their newsletter and it'll tell you some action items like sometimes they might be asking people to call one of the action items we had with milk with dignity was to get on facebook and go on the hannaford grocery store facebook page and just they'll post a recipe or something and we just put in the comments join the milk with dignity program do the right thing <laughs> <laughs> what is the national farm workers website and um also coupled with that if people want to give how do they do that well um their website is easy it's nfwm.org and there's a button there for giving okay all right and they can find more information yeah there's a really awesome um uh, 50th anniversary, I think it was called 50 for 50 um, exhibit. It's like a, a web-based museum exhibit. And there's a pretty cool, there's the copy of a letter that um, was sent to John Lace when he uh, joined uh, the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination with National Farm Worker Ministry. Hmm. And so that's one of the artifacts in the museum, the online museum. Joy, what two books would you recommend to somebody who's listening to Cumberland Road, our conversation right now, two books that have influenced and impacted your faith and your life? Um, I would say, I have to say, and this, I'm kind of weird because it's not, it's not really a religious book, um, but except I feel like it is. <laughs> um, but a lot of people have heard of Brene Brown. Um, I think it was her first book was The Gifts of Imperfection. And I did that in a Sunday school setting. And we had such rich conversation 
um, it was, it was really, really, um, surprising, powerful in the ways that it helped unlock this vulnerability that people were closing off from each other, you know, and as we, as we studied that book, we had a hundred percent participation from that Sunday school class in our Wednesday night activities. And they didn't need to be asked. They were were asking, what can we do? It was like, it sort of seemed to correlate with the study of themselves in that book Mm -hmm. that they wanted to connect with one another in a community, the sense of a covenant community. So I recommend that one. Do you think that's something that we do consciously or subconsciously? that disconnect oh i think it's our culture that wants us to be disconnected and think that this it kind of plays into this myth of scarcity you know um but also that we're not enough or we're not good enough for this or good enough for that and um i think you just take the risk and do it and then you realize oh nobody told me i was terrible maybe i'll do this again you know, and um, we we learn to peel back the lies that we've learned to believe. Is there another book? Let me see. Second book. Um, well, I have to say The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, part of the Chronicles of Narnia. The point in the book where Aslan the lion opens his mouth and the music creates the world is just so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'll pick that one. One more question. You have a, a unique name and your name brings brings a lot to people as a noun. <laughs> Joy, looking over the course of your life, do you think that you've lived up to the meaning of your name? Oh, good gracious. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, my grandma used to call me joyful, mm. and it drove me crazy. Of course, I'd roll my eyes every single time <laughs> and huff. And then, of course, I went through my phase where I wore all black and I had my dyed black hair and my black lipstick and my combat <laughs> boots. And I did not look joyful. And I had my hair in my face all the time. And I knew that she wanted me to wear colorful, but she never did tell me. And uh, she just let me be me. And, and I do think that I, I saw a sign at an action one time that said joy is an act of resistance. And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> and so in that sense of the word, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to, to be. That's interesting. You went through that, that phase of your life where your outward appearance matched the blackness of the sky, the night sky. <laughs> yeah. See, and the dark waters. It's negative. Yeah. I've enjoyed our conversation, Joy. And Me too. Get, Thanks get, for getting asking. to know you better. Yeah. And thank you for walking me through your faith and giving me kind of a a snapshot of who you are and what ministry means to you and and what God means to you. 
and what this creation means to you. Thank you for opening up your life and and your thoughts and sharing them. Well, thank you. I think I learned something about myself as well in the process. <laughs> thank you, Joy. Thanks, CJ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cumberland Road. Please follow on Apple, Spotify, and your favorite podcasting site. In closing, I want to read to you from An Inspector Calls, written by J.B. Priestley. In the third act, the inspector speaks to the universal guilt of ignoring our neighbor. He says, But just remember this. One Eva Smith has gone, but there are millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths still left with us, with their lives, their hopes, and fears, their chance of happiness, all intertwined with our lives and what we think and say and do. We don't live alone. We are members of one body. We are responsible for each other.